You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is The Beat on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that really matter to all of us who live and work here. On our show today, COVID-19 has changed how we will celebrate Canada's 153rd birthday on Wednesday. And we look ahead to the next school year with Ontario's education minister. But we begin with Galit Solomon and a very special guest. David only served as Ontario's Lieutenant Governor from 2007 to 2014. And these days, he is Senior Lecturer and Distinguished Visitor at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And he continues to advocate for the rights of the disabled. Your Honour, welcome to the feed. Uh, thank you very much, Galit. Uh, it's a great thinking back to your television days when I was announced as Lieutenant Governor and you were one of the very first persons to interview me. So, I was great so full thrilled. circle. I, I was actually a couple points. Order, and it was probably one of my favorite assignments. I was so thrilled for you and thrilled to meet your family as well. And then in the years following as well, to just watch you shine in that role, it was, it was fantastic. I'm really Thank excited you. about speaking today with you. And before we focus on Canada Day, how have you been through this pandemic? I think it's a question that we tend to ask everybody mm-hmm. these days because it has impacted everyone. So how have you been? I'm quite well, actually. Of course, I had major surgery um, last November, a successful surgery for uh, a brain tumor that was uh, a total surprise. I had no idea that uh, this was uh, uh, grinding me down. And so uh, following the surgery, the the rebound uh, was quite quick, and I was uh, into physiotherapy by January and uh, in a serious way. And... uh, um, then, of course, as the um, COVID situation unfolded and one by one health-related functions started being uh, shut down, uh, so was the physio and so was the occupational therapy. So it, it kind of uh, sent me back home, if you will. And um, like for so many patients, um, fortunately, I was on the recovery side of things as opposed to those who unfortunately, uh, you know, have had to wait uh, for serious procedures to be done. But um, having been through that uh, recovery process in November, December, where I was at home by and large, um, it was kind of back to what my routine had been. So I think it was, uh, quite frankly, uh, easier for me than perhaps for uh, most people because I had been into that, um, you know, kind of uh, reduced mode for a a number of months. Not that I didn't want to get going. I certainly did, and Mm -hmm. I got back to teaching by the middle of February, and so that helped. But uh, but even there, within two weeks of beginning teaching, um, the classes were suspended, and we had to do everything online. So, uh, you know, like everybody else, you just uh, adapt, if not day-to-day, then certainly week-by-week. Week. And uh, But I'm, I'm glad to see that things are slowly but surely uh, reopening, and uh, there, there will be a lot of questions that have to be answered uh, when this is all said and done in terms of the um, the impact of COVID because, uh, sadly, uh, the disability community and the seniors with disabilities who live in long-term care facilities and uh, seniors' homes 
have been wildly disproportionately affected by COVID. Uh, you know, our, our national statistics run in the 80% of all fatalities have been folks in that category. And, uh, you know, it, it does raise very, very serious questions um, as to our, our treatment of persons with disabilities in homes and seniors, uh, the majority of whom have some degree of a disability. So, uh, you know, another discussion for another day, but it's, uh, you know, it is something that's uh, going to have to be assessed. And, yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, over the years, of course, you have advocated for the rights of the disabled. Uh, a specific memory that stands out for me, you were a keynote speaker at an event that I uh, happened to attend, and there was mm-hmm. a podium that was set up on a riser, but the you know the only way to really get on it was to use the stairs, and you had made a point to say you were in the role of a lieutenant governor at that mm-hmm. point, uh, and you made it a point to say, you know, clearly we have a long way to go still when it comes yeah. to to uh, the rights of, of the disabled. Do you feel like we've come a long way uh, in the last decade or so? And how much work do you suppose still needs to be done? Um, I, I think we've come a long way, but I, I think if you want to measure it, say, from the distance that we've come since the end of World War II, which mm-hmm. is some 75 years, um, whatever that distance is, we have uh, approaching a similar distance yet to go. Um, now, having said that, things have improved dramatically, if only because it is top of mind and because people are living longer, uh, the odds are greater and greater that you will experience some kind of disability as you age. Um, because of that, there is simply uh, greater and greater awareness um, about the issue, but you know, until we come to grips with what I have already proposed, that I testified before a House of Commons committee about a month ago, instead of just kind of letting us slide into a, what everyone is saying is the new normal, uh, we have to be aggressively and actively thinking of what kind of new normal it's going to be. And uh, I'm suggesting that that new normal needs to be one that is far more accessible because it's going to be healthier and it's going to work towards preventing uh, the spread of any future virus. And I, I immediately address the whole proposition of opening and closing doors, you know, something that we take for granted and, and, and you know, before the virus hit, you'd be out in public grab a door handle, pull it open, push a door to push it open, mm-hmm. wouldn't think twice as to how many thousands of hands had touched that door. Right. Um, for people with disabilities who have mobility issues, uh, those who are visually impaired, um, people like myself who use an electric scooter, those with walkers or wheelchairs uh, or canes or crutches, um, doors are a major barrier. And automatic doors are the answer to the problem. And so, you know, as you think ahead to what's going to be unfolding, um, how many of us are going to open and close doors the way we did in the past without right. thinking twice? Mm-hmm. And my suggestion is, no, not many. We're going to be looking for alternatives, and those alternatives happen to be um, accessibility concepts that help people with disabilities, but make it safer for everybody. It's just an indication that this is an opportunity to really um, 
transform things for the better. Right, right. And it's true. You know, I mean, when you look at any life scenario, a challenge is a real opportunity to grow and, and learn and move yeah. on to sort of the next level, you hope, right? Yeah. Speaking of challenges, you know, Canada has uh, overcome many challenges over the years. And Canada Day mm-hmm. coming up in just a few days. Um, what has Canada Day meant to you, especially having uh, served in, in, in the role of uh, Lieutenant mm-hmm. Governor, um, and your thoughts about it today? Well, it was always a joyous time, quite frankly, because on the majority of occasions um, of my seven years in office, um, I, I, I participated in six Canada Day ceremonies because I was in, installed in uh, uh, the end of uh, September of 2007. But um, the majority of them were at Queen's Park, uh, although I did one in Collingwood and another in uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Um, and it was it was always a spectacular opportunity because thousands of people would come out to Queen's Park and uh, the government provided uh, refreshments and, uh, you know, the typical things that little kids like to see, which are jumping castles and face painting, mm-hmm. and we, we see these all over the place. But because of the occasion, there were always performances and uh, speeches by famous Ontarians and uh, presentations and it, and it, you could just see the pride of the participants truly you could see it from the stage you could see it and you could see just the sea of humanity that you know represents the province of Ontario of all different colors and uh, stripes and costumes and many people in their you know their their native costumes or their original home uh, land, and uh, so it was always an inspiring day uh, when I did that. And I think today, this year, because of COVID, it's going to be obviously different. We won't have the same crowding permissions that uh, uh, have been in, in the past, um, and I would suspect a lot more people will be doing their own backyard uh, fireworks. So. Mm-hmm. The usual warnings apply there, but uh, it, it can be a, a real opportunity to uh, have a, a personal family celebration or maybe a small gathering of some neighbors, uh, numbers permitting. And uh, in that sense, it, it can be a very special event, and I, I suspect it will. And um, so... We just hope the weather will be fine. Right, right. It has been quite hot outside these days, yeah. hasn't it? Um, yeah. In wrapping up our conversation, do you have any advice to young people about Canada's future and how to make a difference? Yes, I do. And, in fact, it's something I wrote to my students, um, posted to them at the end of the academic term as they were coming to grips with the fact that, uh, you know, we weren't going to be meeting again as a group. Uh, a number of them, because it's a senior seminar course, would be graduating uh, this year, um, m- many of them returning for more studies. And I just simply reminded them that, you know, while this has been uh, and continues to be a major upheaval, it's not unprecedented. You know, that previous generations of students, uh, like at the start of World War II, at the start of World War One you know, literally had to drop and, and leave everything uh, before they could even think of continuing mm-hmm. their education. And, of course, many of them simply didn't come back. And so what I reminded the students was, um, while this is unprecedented in Canadian history, and it truly is, 
um, it's not the first time that people have gone through great adversity in this country and that we will come out the better for it uh, and that their education will continue and opportunities will be there and uh, so you you needed to just I just reminded them and encouraged them to you know not to despair that uh, that things are going to be uh, new demands are going to be placed upon all of us when we come out the other side um, but that means opportunities for young people and as I've said hundreds and hundreds of times to uh, young people especially those in political science but anyone who's interested in the system uh, and that is. When the next election comes along, and it doesn't matter whether the next one is municipal, provincial, or federal, simply doesn't matter. When the next election comes along, uh, pick your favorite candidate, and I honestly, it doesn't matter to me which party you support or which candidate you support, but simply get involved. Get involved in the electoral process. Go and be a volunteer, uh, and you will be richer for it. It will be something that looks uh, absolutely sterling on your resume for the future, whatever that may be. Again, doesn't matter what the party is. Just get yourself involved because there are going to be real demands on this country. We make no mistake about it. You know, the, we've not hit the recovery phase yet, but we're going to. And when we do, uh, it's going to require an enormous effort on the part of people of all ages. And this is their time. This is truly their time mm. to carve out a whole new path for themselves. That's great advice. Uh, former Lieutenant Governor David Onley, thank you so much for your time today. It's been lovely chatting Khalid, with you. It's been an ab absolute pleasure. Thank you so very, very much. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. In the first study of its kind since the pandemic was declared, a new Angus Reid survey found that Chinese Canadians have experienced racism during COVID-19. Tina Cortez with that story. Earlier this week, an Angus Reid survey revealed that a majority of Chinese Canadians say they have been targets of anti-Asian racism brought on by COVID-19. Mary Ng is the MP for Markham Thornhill and the Federal Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade. Minister Ng, welcome back to the show. Hello, Tina. Really nice to uh, be with you here. Thank you for being here. And you, your office connected with us on this story because you wanted to speak out. Why is that? Well, I think that the study that has uh, come out that Angus Reid uh, produced is yet another reminder that racism is real and that it has devastating effects on people's lives every day. They refer to this as the shadow pandemic. And I think it's really important that we together need to defeat the shadow pandemic of racism. And uh, indeed, when you see uh, the statistics as reported, something like 50% of Chinese Canadians have either been called names or have been insulted, or that 50% um, fear that Asian children will be bullied in school, or that 61% of Asian Canadians have changed their daily routines in order to avoid terrible encounters or just to be safe. This is troubling, and it's upsetting. And sadly, this is also far too familiar to the stories that I've heard directly from Canadians in my own writing in Markham Thornhill, but also from Canadians across the country. So 
to anyone who's experienced this, I just want to, I want you to know that I'm with you. And as a proud Chinese Canadian, I'm always going to stand up for Canadian values of acceptance, inclusion, and diversity. But we must fight this. We must fight against racism and discrimination. And what have your constituents then shared with you? What are some of those stories? Can you share them with us? Yes, I mean, um, they, they reflect the study uh, very much. So, um, so um, a young person who is out walking on the street um, and uh, not provoking anyone in any way was uh, verbally, you know, verbally threatened. Um, someone who is wearing a mask uh, in an effort to, you know, by taking health direction is, uh, you know, verbally threatened. And um, and we certainly heard from across the country and uh, seen reports across the country that uh, that some of the uh, some of the discriminatory and racist behavior extends to you know extends to violent behavior whether it is someone being a young woman being assaulted uh, for just you know for for what she looks like uh, being an Asian Canadian or thinking that they are a Chinese Canadian and uh, or an older gentleman being assaulted. Uh, an older Asian Chinese or Asian uh, uh, gentleman being assaulted. So these are troubling and it's upsetting. And and but I do think that it's um, you know I do think that we do have an opportunity where we must stand together. I think the next generation is counting on us, our voices and our actions, so that we can in fact do something about this. So that uh, so that we can speak out against racism and to, uh, to always fight against discrimination. And Minister, what do you say to those parents who maybe were part of this survey and are worried that their children are going to be bullied when they return back to school in September? What do you say to them? I say that we are with you and that we need to work through this together. Um, from what I think about uh, the wonderful stories and the wonderful contributions of Chinese Canadians in our past, people like Margaret G, who was the first woman of Chinese descent to be called to the bar in British Columbia, an Olympian like athletes like figure skater Patrick Chan, who's made the Canadian, you know, Canadian so proud as a Chinese Canadian, to people who served in the Canadian World Navy, like William Lore, who was the first Canadian officer. Now these are people, um, a couple of these people are people from our past. But I think that it speaks to the invaluable contributions that Asian Canadians make to the social, economic, and community fabric. I think there's an opportunity to celebrate these contributions and to and to be proud. But I also I also think that just as we have Canadians fought to flatten this curve and to fight against a um, a health pandemic, we also need to come together to fight against this shadow pandemic. Of racism and discrimination, and um, and we can't let the fear of this pandemic be an excuse to be, you know, to to allow for racist or discriminatory behavior. But I do think that as Canadians, we need to fight together against this. What was it like for you growing up, a daughter of Chinese immigrants coming to this country, possibly unfamiliar with the language and the way of life? What was it like for you, and have you seen enough change? Well, I uh, recently wrote uh, an op-ed in the Toronto Star about uh, what my childhood growing up here in Canada was and what it showed to me growing up in Toronto, which is very multicultural, the best of what Canada can be. So as a young immigrant 
to Canada from Hong Kong. My experience as a young student in diverse classrooms showed that our differences were valued, and I, I celebrated my heritage, my Chinese heritage, my Chinese identity, but I was so super proud to also be able you know, to be a Canadian. And I always believed that we were a country where hard work, um, where hard work and our value of building a welcoming place for people from all around the world who choose to call this place home is what we are about. But we are far from immune from racism and hate, and we can't let this behavior go unchecked. And um, this study, as we are seeing it right now, because of COVID-19, simply says that we have a lot of work we still need to continue to do. And racism in all forms is unacceptable. And that includes um, what we are seeing in our communities of hurt with anti-black racism, racism towards indigenous people or, you know, race uh, towards indigenous people, racism towards racialized people. Markham Thornhill is this. So while that is, while that is the case, Markham Thornhill also has a whole lot to be proud of um, because we are so diverse. We are made up of people from all around the world. And I do think that, uh, that, that what this says to us right now is an opportunity where we must, where we must stand together and we must do a better job at, um, at defeating this um, shadow pandemic. And Minister, what is your message then to our listeners, our followers, as we head into Canada Day next week? Well, first of all, happy Canada Day to everyone. This year certainly is uh, will be different. It's unprecedented, uh, as I have been saying, um, everywhere. Um, and we're not going to be able to celebrate it in the way that we have in previous years. So I would say to everyone, please stay safe. Please continue to listen to the direction of our health officials. I think it's really important to continue, if you are out, to practice physical distancing. If you are out uh, to wear um, to wear a mask to protect others. And uh, I think the most important thing is to celebrate uh, the wonderful birthday of our country, but at the same time to remember to stay safe for yourself and for those uh, in our community. Mary Ng, Federal Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Nina, and all the best to you, and happy Canada Day. Time now for our first break on the feed. When we come back, Ontario's Education Minister Stephen Lecce joins the show. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer, and this is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Well, lots of announcements on the education front of late. Stephen Lecce, Education Minister and MPP for King Vaughn, is with us now on the feed to guide us through the myriad of education information. Thanks for joining us, Minister Lecce. Thank you, and great to be back. So let's start with the safety plan. The resumption of school learning, the possible return to classrooms in September. Your plan includes three options. Uh, we we understand the options, a normal school day, a modified school day, and learning at home. Why offer so many scenarios to both school boards, to parents, and to children? You know, the our priority and our commitment is to keep kids safe, Anne, and that's why we sent them home in March, the first in the country to do that, because we weren't going to take a risk when it comes to our youngest learners or your families. So, 
you know, we are saying to school boards, because there's so much variance and so much change with COVID, we have to be ready for all scenarios. And yes, the ambition and goal is to get kids in class every day. It just has to be safe. And when I'm talking to the best experts at sick kids and uh, Dr. Williams at the COVID command table, their advice to us is to take a cautious restart and get this right based on today's data. That could change, and you know it will change. Of course it's going to change next week, let alone in two months. So we've provided boards with instruction to be ready for all circumstances because I don't want a situation where something gets thrown at us and we can't respond, keep kids safe, keep kids learning. Uh, we're also investing more money for school boards for September. Every board in Ontario, including, of course, here in New York region, is going to be receiving more money, more investments, more cleaning supports, more hiring to get this right and keep kids safe. But most importantly, ensure that the integrity of learning continues, which, you know, these kids deserve. Will there be any uniformity in terms of measures right across the board, so no options? Will there be a point at which you say, as the education minister, it's mandatory that kids wear masks, that teachers wear masks, that everyone who enters a school uh, property inside or out is wearing a mask, and, of course, sanitization stations everywhere. So there is no gray area when it comes to that kind of safety protocol. Well, we are. We absolutely are creating standards in the context of health and safety guidelines. For example, under the uh, that adaptive uh, blended model, there's clear specificity on our plan. You can't have more than 15 kids in the class. There needs to be uh, social distancing practice. The children have to be cohorted, meaning that grouping them so that they, you know, they could play together, they eat together, they learn together, but they could be kids together. And I think, and you know, something that we often you know, that isn't get talked about too, too much, although it is being spoken about more, is the social, emotional, mental health impacts of these kids being isolated. So this program of keeping them as 15 in cohorts are going to allow them to sort of uh, have a bit of a more new normal, if that makes sense, and allow them to really be children, which is so important to their development. Uh, more importantly, the hygiene protocols, cleaning protocols, the new enhanced cleaning protocols, we sent on over 62 pages of detail to school boards and what they must uh, adhere to in the context of uh, deep cleaning of schools, of high contact services constantly being cleaned, of getting sanitation products out to schools in the province. Our government is investing additional money for soap, for sanitation, and for hiring custodians. So we're going to keep doing that uh, and creating an element of standardization because, yes, there's got to be safety guidelines, but we're also going to allow, you know, York Region is, doesn't have the same risk profile of COVID than, say, Kenora or Muskoka. And I think what we need to recognize in Ontario is there's a lot of difference in regional variants in a very large province, and we've got to have some flexibility for school boards to respond to the local challenges. And that's why we built a plan that, you know, does that. So children, and, and that's the focus of the feed this weekend, it's Our Kids, Our Future as we celebrate Canada Day in the coming days. Children turn to their parents and they look to their parents for guidance, for support. There are a lot of parents out there who are on the fence or a little bit nervous about the idea of sending their children back into a classroom. What do you say to the parents? Well, the first is that I respect their decision, and that's why the government has ensured that school boards must offer a option for parents for in-class instruction, you know, the in-class experience, or an online experience. They actually have uh, that choice, and that's a requirement we put in place. Because we want, because we believe educators that, you know, for, for parents, they're first educators. They're on the front lines and we need to give them that choice. So we will do that and boards will do that. The second is the health and safety protocols were developed 
by literally some of the best scientific and medical uh, uh, minds in the country. We were able to leverage a massive amount of pediatric talent at sick kids. And their advice to us was this protocol is safe. Um, you know, it really is built on a one mission, which is the safety of staff and students with a protocol that keeps the grouping small, keeps the spacing, keeps the cleaning uh, up and the standards up. And, uh, you know, even in the context of transportation, everything has provided guidance in that. So I think for parents, you know, you, we will respect your decision. We'll ensure your child continues to be safe and learning. But I do believe that the protocols we put in place will ensure the safety of your child because we are uh, enforcing them, we are investing more. And in the context of, you know, uh, that, that angst that may exist for, for some children, especially in the context of their mental health, and some parents may say, look, I, I'm not sure my child may be ready for that, uh, for, for re-entering schools. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's their choice. But I will say is we put additional, I announced last week, um, you know, and an additional $10 million in mental health supports to hire more psychologists and psychotherapists and social workers. And so the reason why I'm saying that is if you have, and as a parent, if you have a concern that my child needs more support, social, emotional support during this process, I want you to know that the government has a dedicated additional $10 million. We've more than doubled the mental health portfolio. We're increasing the special education portfolio. And for spec ed kids, kids with exceptionalities, we're asking boards to ensure no matter what, that there's a day-to-day uh, a consistent routine for those kids, meaning they'd be there every day uh, because we know from the medical advice consistency is important. So that, I think that's the main message. It's going to be safe. It's going to, we're going to give the investment, the tool, and the training for our staff to get this right. And there are going to be new additions to the curriculum. So you announced yeah. recently uh, that you're hoping to prepare students for a rapidly changing world. Isn't that the truth? You announced the new math yeah. curriculum for elementary students. I took a look at it, and honestly, I, I thought if I ended up back in grade four or grade five or at grade eight, I would really be stumped by some of the the course curriculum, the, the, the areas that you're going to be touching on, but it is an ever-changing world. So let's review right. why you decided to kind of take this back-to-basics approach and, and the necessary reforms. What is it that you're trying to do and, and create for your students? We're trying to create a competitive advantage. And, you know, I'm, you know, for a decade, we have all spoken and seen the EQAO data, the performance assessment of students in grade six. The majority of students in this province are failing to meet the math standard. The majority of students are failing to meet that standard. That is a crisis. We have a problem, and we've known about this for years. It's not about, you know, one party over the other. It's about getting it right. And if we want to give every opportunity to our children, we need to modernize our curriculum. It hasn't been updated since 2005. I mean, not for anything, Ann, but, you know, YouTube was being launched back then, you know, and, I, and Xbox 360 was unveiled. I mean, this is a different world. The economy has changed. The landscape and, therefore, the criteria and the, the competencies our young people need and the labor market demands requires our, our, our curriculum to be updated. And so what we've done, knowing that there's a problem uh, with declining math scores, you know, under the discovery math approach uh, that the liberals had unveiled, you know, we sort of said, look, we've got to go back to basics. We ran a campaign on this. We have a political mandate from the people to get it right. So we did that. The new curriculum, what I'm excited about is it actually helps students uh, uh, you know, solve these everyday math problems. It enshrines financial literacy in the earliest grade, grade one, which is new for this province in this country. And we're better preparing students, as I say, you know, about those 
the jobs of tomorrow by ensuring that every student could code, coding starting in grade one, those computational skills. That is, I think, going to set these students up for success. And I'm really proud of it. For the first time, this curriculum includes social-emotional learning skills, uh, really to give this, these kids the, 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 the resilience to, to try, to fail, to try again, to get through math, and to know that there's um, an opportunity for them to, to, um, to keep learning in an area, you know, in the context, the context of numeracy, that's going to be really critical for their success. So we are committed to it. We cannot wait. We will not defend the status quo. We've got to move on and get this done right. We're providing significant professional development to our teachers. And for the first time, it's digital. The curriculum is online right now. Go online, folks, ontario.ca forward slash curriculum. And you can see for the first time a parent guide that allows you and empowers parents to know exactly what their children are learning, what they learned last year related to that strand, what they need to learn next year. You could actually on one page compare last year, this year, next year, to understand sort of con the intellectual consistency in the curriculum to empower parents to better understand. Because, you know, you know, and respectfully, you're not, you know, I don't expect you to know how to code, but I'm sure you like to know at least, you know, why your child's learning it and how some tips to maybe enable you to help your child to, if you're in that circumstance. So we've really done a lot now to modernize not just the pedagogy and the, and the, the details in it, but even the, uh, the tools to help parents uh, as well as tools to help educators uh, with this new curriculum. Yeah, and that's key. How about the teachers? Will they be ready? Has there been pushback from them about the, the timing of this announcement? Well, look, I mean, I think what's important is that professional development is being offered and we're mandating it for every teacher in Ontario. We'll be providing constant webinars all summer to make sure that every teacher in elementary has that knowledge and is, is expected to know it. Um, and we've given them sufficient time. It's why we announced this now for September. We announced a, a large uh, professional development program. We announced access to technology, uh, to computers for educators that will require them, you know, and also... Um, as I said, this was developed by 16 educators, leading math experts. Uh, the unions have been involved in this process for well over a year. Uh, we've had them look at the, the, the curriculum. And overwhelmingly, what we're hearing, you know, from educators, from people in the, in the, in the public and private sector, leaders within the economy, um, you know, uh, and even politicians of all political stripes have, have largely said this is a good curriculum. This is a solid curriculum that will make Ontario a STEM leader. Um, you know, and when we, and in the context of the, uh, of offering professional development, we hear that. We have always intended to do it. We've got a very strong plan to make sure the teachers are well equipped to succeed in ruling this out. Because at the end of the day, end, we're going to be teaching math in September no matter what. Well, I opt to teach a curriculum that is relevant to the skills they need so that these students, for the first time, know how to understand the concept of budgeting and debt and interest. And they actually have to do a personal budget. You know, that type of practical knowledge is the differentiator here between what we were doing, the theory-based discovery approach of 2005 with the practical back-to-basics approach where a child needs to memorize their timetables. I mean, there are certain things that just time-tested and true of the past that we could harness while still looking very much forward in the context of AI, in the context of coding, and other sort of modern uh, innovations taking place around us so they make sure that the students really get the best of both. It sounds to me that parents really do need to uh, step up and, and learn as much as they can about what their children will be learning so that there can be that continued bond that has been created over the past several months with, you know, kind of homeschooling, if you will, uh, but at-home learning. And really, all of us need to sort of step up and, and learn. So teachers, parents, uh, students, and the rest of us who are on the outside looking in. So let me ask you, 
what do you envision come September? It's, so it's the day after Labor Day. It's the Tuesday, back to school. What in your mind's eye do you see? Well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I think what I see is, you know, uh, a lot of high-energy, anxious folks at re-entering schools, uh, but all with the same aim, which is to support each other, to learn, and to be safe. And I think the system is going to be set up for that. We've got months to plan. We've got, I, I built a team of medical and scientific experts, which every board in Ontario will have access to, to develop their plans. They're going to be supported by their local health officers. You know, what I see in September is, you know, a, a positive, safe restart. Um, you know, of course, there's challenges that are going to manifest, uh, you know, right across society as things reopen. But I think we have engaged the right minds. We've listened. We've acted. We've invested. I mean, over $730 million more million this September in to make sure that our students and school boards are set up to succeed. $10 million more in mental health, $15 million more to build 37,000 computers. I mean, I really do think that, um, you know, we're, gonna, we're on the right track. So my, 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 what I envision for September is a positive restart, uh, a little bit of anxiety. I'm sure everyone will be a bit nervous about it. But, you know, if we do, if we work together over the summer uh, and we're prepared for all three circumstances, we are going to be prepared um, with the resources, the tools, and the training and the cleaning protocols. And so I feel that, um, I feel that, uh, uh, I feel positive about it. And I just know that there's a lot more work to do and I'm excited to do it because kids need to keep learning and they need to be in school in September. A quick word to all the graduates um, before the year 2020. And I also want to ask you, you're a young man, so it wasn't that long ago that you graduated. What do you remember about that? And what have you learned from your oh my graduation? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm not that young, and <laughs> God bless you. But, I mean, what I would say to you is, look, I mean, I am, I honestly am so impressed by the resilience and the strength of our students. I mean, this has been a tough year. This is, I mean, talk about facing adversity earlier on in your life. And I think what I, you know, what I said when I spoke with the Premier uh, to the graduating students a little while ago, we did a little uh, speech to the grads. And what I really want to emphasize to them is the idea of never losing hope and overcoming adversity. And, and through a life, we're going to have to do that. But remaining hopeful and optimistic and, and, and patriotic, knowing that we live in the best country in the world. We honestly are so blessed to be Canadians. Uh, but we also have responsibilities as citizens to rise to the, challenge, to, to the occasion and really to do our best and to never lose hope uh, in the prospect of progress. And I, I think that's been an important message. And I just want young people to know that you deserve this graduation, this accolades. You've inspired all of us, your teachers, your, your families, and your government. And I think um, we're all just proud of you, and we really want you to go off in school trades or in college, university, in the job market, wherever life takes you, knowing um, that uh, you've got a you know, just a, a whole group of folks out there rallying for you to, to turn you on to succeed in life. And so I wish you well and a continued safety and continue um, optimism in your heart. And I know that, that these young people are going to do amazing things and change the world. I really do believe this generation is going to do that in, the, in, in, in all areas from innovation uh, you know, to saving lives. And so I wish them well, and I thank them, because this past year has been my first as the Minister of Education, my first as the Cabinet Minister, and I've never been more inspired by the young people in my entire life. Um, they've really motivated me and reminded me why and who I'm here to serve. Education Minister Stephen Lecce, thank you for joining us on the feed. 
Of course. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you so much, Anne. Appreciate it. Thank you. When we return, the virtual Canada Day celebrations and a very special rendition of O Canada. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. On Wednesday, Canada turns 153. But this year, of course, the celebration will look very different. Melanie Bro is the federal spokesperson for Canada Day. Melanie, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. Why is it important now more than ever to celebrate Canada's birthday? You know, Canada Day is truly a one-of-a-kind event that really brings together Canadians across the entire country. And really at a time like this, I think it's uh, important now, probably more than ever, that we come together from coast to coast to coast to celebrate our history and our culture. And Canada Day is definitely a great opportunity to unite Canadians as a people and to highlight a nation that promotes diversity and inclusion. Now, before we talk about the specific events that are planned, while this is the 153rd anniversary of Confederation, what other milestones are we recognizing this year? So there's a lot of interesting things that we're going to be highlighting in our Canada Day celebrations this year. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, it's the 40th anniversary of Canada's national anthem. So we're going to make sure that we highlight that. In addition to uh, highlighting the role played by the Métis Nation people in the founding of Manitoba 150 years ago, uh, which obviously means that we're going to be highlighting Indigenous languages and cultural traditions. And like in previous years, we're going to also be highlighting Canada's official languages. And also this year, under sort of the context of COVID-19, Canadian entrepreneurship and innovation. Good timing. Now, what events specifically then are planned and how can our listeners participate? So on July 1st, uh, we're super excited that we have two different programs that will be uh, available for Canadians uh, to tune in and watch. Uh, we will have our daytime program that will be available from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and that show is actually going to highlight so many different cities right across the country. We're going to be making stops in Sudbury, Montreal, Quebec City, Calgary, Winnipeg, uh, Yellowknife and Moncton. So it's really an opportunity to see iconic locations in each of these cities and there's going to be artistic representations from each of these cities as well. So we're super excited about that. And then again, uh, from 8 to 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time is where we're going to have our uh, Canada Day evening show. And this is where uh, we're going to be bringing so many different Canadian artists together. Uh, we have uh, such an amazing lineup that we're super excited about. We have Alanis Morissette, Avril Lavigne, Sarah McLaughlin, The Sheepdogs, other artists such as Shane Koizan, uh, The Jerry Cans, Charlotte Tardet, Loud, and so much more. And it's really a unique opportunity to see all of these, these different artists that are going to do collaborative numbers together. Sort of a, a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so we're super excited about that. And how were the artists in terms of wanting to participate? Did they jump at the chance to, to do this and, and celebrate in this unique way with the rest of Canada? 
Yes, of course. We've had uh, so many artists that have uh, reached out to us to express an interest in participating in Canada uh, Day, like we do every year. Uh, so it's always making sure that, uh, you know, we're putting our best show forward, making sure that we're representing Canada from coast to coast to coast and delivering the best Canada Day um, event and, and program that we can for everybody to enjoy. So tell us a little bit about the fireworks display, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, we aren't actually going to be having a live uh, fireworks this year, which is a little bit disheartening, but we really want to make sure that Canadians stay safe. Uh, and we know that uh, uh, the instruction is for everybody to stay home as much as possible. So uh, at the end of our evening show, we are going to include a sort of a best of cameo uh, experience, if you will, of the best fireworks that we've had over the last few years. But in addition to that, this year, what we're also going to be doing is offering uh, a fireworks digitally through an augmented reality experience. So we're actually in discussions right now finalizing this with a web application company who is producing a virtual fireworks that uh, Canadians will be able to uh, use at home while social distancing and experience fireworks in their own back backyard. So it's going to be something completely unique and different, and we're super excited about that this year. Well, 2020 has been such a unique year. It only makes sense that our national celebration should also be just as unique. Where can our listeners get more information? Yes. Um, so my recommendation, uh, and there's so much more, I've just, you know, shared with you the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other activities that are planned. I would recommend that folks take a look at Canada.ca forward slash Canada Day. And everything that we have planned is available on that website. There's lots of activities. There's different ways uh, for people to get engaged. There's a bunch of challenges that are uh, being put forward to Canadians to participate uh, with as well. So lots to see and do. What can you tell us about those challenges just before we wrap up? Well, what we've done is we've actually uh, engaged with some uh, renowned Canadians. Um, so, for instance, uh, Chef Ricardo and decorated athlete Etienne Boulet. And uh, what they've done is they've launched out a challenge to Canadians. So, Ricardo has uh, come up with this amazing Canadian uh, hamburger where he is uh, really uh, suggesting that people shop local uh, and incorporate some Canadian uh, into their burger. So, including things like cheese curd, for instance. And he's recommending that people make the burger at home, take videos, take photos, and send it back to us. And we're going to be incorporating a lot of these uh, videos and photos into a capsule that we're going to be made uh, available to everybody to see on June uh, 29th. In addition, Etienne Boulet um, is also challenging Canadians to get active because we know now more than ever um, a lot more people are at home, but we want to stay active, and that's super important for every Canadian to stay active. So there's a challenge that's coming from him and a lot of his Olympic and uh, sport friends to get active, take videos, take photos of yourself and send it back to us and we're going to incorporate a lot of this content into capsules that we will be producing and made available, as I said, on June 29th. That sounds great. Melanie, one more time, the website for more information. Canada.ca forward slash Canada Day. That's terrific. Thank you for joining us and happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you and to all your listeners. Thanks.
Lincoln Haggard Ives, the pride and joy of Vaughn, was to perform at Carnegie Hall earlier this month as part of the American Protégé Music Competition, but COVID-19 changed all of that. Lincoln joins us now on the feed. Lincoln, congratulations. You just graduated grade 8. How was that? So yesterday I um, had my graduation ceremony, and I got to see all of my classmates and friends and my teachers again. And my teacher prepared this little video saying goodbye and saying some messages as well. And I was really happy with uh, with the video. And um, I'm also very upset because I'm never going to see my school and friends again. Or uh, if I do see my school again, it will be in a celebration next year sometime. And I'm very upset that COVID-19 had to ruin my graduation because I was really looking forward to that. Has music helped you get through this pandemic, Lincoln? Yeah, music has got, helped me get through this pandemic because I still did my orchestra online with Zoom and I got to see all my friends through the orchestra and my conductor and we got to do this whole thing. We even had our own concert on Zoom and all the parents were like watching the concert. Uh, we played Beethoven and Mozart pieces, one of my favorite ones. And it was very, very fun, even practicing the pieces and the music made me um, happy as well. And it's made me uh, feel calm during this very upsetting time. So, Lincoln, you're about to perform for us here on the feed, 105.9 The Region, your very own arrangement of O Canada. What inspired you to add your personal touch to this incredible song? So, um, I'm a very big fan of Bach. He's one of my favorite composers. And I wanted to take Bach and take O Canada and sort of mix them up together. And I wanted to make O Canada sound the best that I could make it sound possibly. And I would do that by adding in ornamentations and trills and other things like that and double stops. And that would make it sound the best that I can make it sound. And I'm very happy that I could do that. And I'm also a huge fan. I'm so happy to be a citizen and a part of Canada. Last year, I went to Ottawa with my parents and my aunt uh, to watch the fireworks on Canada Day. And I'm disappointed that I'm going to be spending my Canada Day just completely indoors today uh, uh, um, on this Canada Day. And But yeah, I'm very happy to be a citizen of Canada. And I'm very happy I got to perform on the feed. We cannot wait to hear you perform. Lincoln, thank you. Thank you, Anne Wilmer. And thank you all for joining us for this very special Canada Day edition of The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Ladies and gentlemen, Lincoln Haggard Ives.